This is the I Love Success Podcast. I'm Peter Jurukowski, and I have made a vow to myself to help as many people as possible to achieve their dreams. Let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to the I Love Success Podcast. It's an honor and pleasure to have you here with me. If this is the first time you're listening to this show, my big fat mission is to help at least 10 million people in 10 years to go after their dreams. How do I do that? I bring on game changers of the world that have dedicated their life to several subjects, including writing, sales, sports, and many, many other fields. I'm grateful that you're with us. I want to grow. I want to help as many people as possible. So if you enjoy this show, please give us a review, share this with somebody and buckle up, bring out your paper and pen, because I, I'm sure that this show is going to be on fire. I have an incredible, incredible person that I, that I admire a lot. And he has sold over a million books. And instead of giving my own introduction, I'm actually going to read his introduction from one of his most popular books, Exactly What to Say, because I, I thought it was brilliant. So here we go. Writing about yourself is the worst. How do I share my experience without sounding braggy? Do you really care that much anyway? Should I just write it in third person and see how that sounds? These are all questions I find myself struggling with as I write this. Yes, I have enjoyed a challenging and varied career, and I have achieved a lot, of, a lot through failing miserably and learning fast. It's true. I do live pretty much the life of my dreams. I drive the car I had a, a poster up on my bedroom wall as a kid and have two homes in the location added to dream boards in my teens. And people do say nice things about me and the results I've helped them achieve. The reality is, though, that I'm just a normal guy who's the son of a builder and who's doing the best he can to make rhyme or reason of this crazy world we live in. My passions are my health, people, and the belief that one person can change the world. I'm on a mission to change the way people think about selling and to help them realize that sales is not a dirty word. With that being said, welcome Phil M. Jones to the I Love Success podcast. Hey, great to be here, Peter. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's it's a true pleasure. And uh, I, I've been reading your, your book here in the past week, and I know you've written several books just to learn more about what you're about. And uh, before going into that, I want to take a step back and talk about Phil as a kid. I, where did you grow up? How was life? And how, <laughs> how the heck did you start writing books about the, the right things to say? Uh, I mean, my early years were, were great. I have son of, of two loving parents. My dad was 19 when he married my mom at 17, and they're delightfully still together today and, and was one of four kids in, a, in, in an upbringing in the suburbs outside London. And they did everything they could to be able to get me into the best circumstances they could that resulted in me being at a pretty decent school that we got in through academics, but I was certainly not of the, the financial position to be able to compete with many of the other folks who were at that same school. So my sort of early teen years were surrounded by people that had the sneakers that I would have liked to have and they, you know, the, the, the trappings that they had as 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 young as young growing up men. I was in an all-boys school at the time. 
And I think from my early years is I always wanted to be able to strive higher, achieve more and, and go on to be able to live out my own version of success and tried the early days of saying to my parents, hey, can I have and, and found out that that would get me to a pretty short answer of no um, for, for all the right reasons. And, and quite early started to be able to look at ways of being able to take my future into my own hands. And age of 14, um, I was building businesses. By the age of 15, I wasn't going to school as often as I should. And I remember being asked why. And my question always back to my school teachers was, was how much money are you making, sir? And, and, and by the age that of must 15, have been popular question. <laughs> yeah, I, I was a little more arrogant at that point in time in my life than I am today. And, and, and you know, at 15, I was making big money as a kid. I was making two, three, four, five thousand pounds a month as a child. And, and, and you know, that doing what? Wasted. <laughs> cleaning cars i had a car cleaning business and then we had a a landscaping business and a mobile disco sort of events business had all sorts of things going on through my teens that were just generating revenue and was was excited about making a difference in the world from there so my my early years were entrepreneurial but you know lifestyle entrepreneurial it wasn't making big money or or starting to be able to start giant companies just good 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 earnings from doing good work locally in the community I didn't take the traditional route of going to university and, and getting a degree that way. By alternative, I became the youngest ever sales manager for a department store group called Debenhams in the UK. Yeah. So by the age of 18, 19, I was leading senior teams of people who'd been in the roles a lot longer and learning what it took to be able to manage big teams in a retail environment. I went from there to be a store manager and, and project turnaround consultant with a big furniture retail business in the UK called DFS. And in both those roles, one of the biggest things that I learned is that you cannot demand respect just because your job description or your title says that they should be respecting you. It doesn't always be the case. And, you know, in my early 20s, I still looked like I was in my teens. I was a young looking man and, and, and didn't get a great deal of respect. So I started to learn a lot about how I could direct the performance of others using the performance of others. So instead of saying to Peter, here's how you could be more successful is I would be studying the behaviors of other successful people and say, hey, Peter, I've been watching Colin. And one of the things that Colin does that that makes him remarkably successful or helps him in that scenario is he does this, this and this. Thought you might want to just get some insights into how he's achieving what he's achieving right now. So I start studying the behaviors of others and use the behavior of others in my leadership style to be able to get other people to step up. I didn't necessarily do it strategically or on purpose. It was just my own way of being able to overcome the age bias that I was presented at the time um, and to win respect without using personal opinion. Served me pretty well because I would continually start to crowdsource the brilliance of others, not just similar to how you're doing in this podcast, really, by, by collecting evidence from people who'd walked a path before me. And I, I learned real quick that success leaves clues yeah. and developed another really what I believe to be an essential belief for my life that is if somebody else can do it, can somebody else be me? Um, and that's a question I ask myself often. And sometimes the answer is no, right? If somebody else can play for the NBA and, and, and can shoot hoops and slam dunks, somebody else can win martial arts, et cetera. Like those things aren't necessarily in my future. Sometimes the answer is no, but sometimes the answer is yes. And um, I started to be able to have goals and aspirations of being able to uh, achieve more and, 2008, I started my own training business and, and, and delivering sales skills to local independent business owners in the middle of England. And that training business grew out from giving 
single workshops with eight, 10, 12 people that then became a coaching business that then became a consulting business that then became first book in 2011. And, and, and since that point, we've now gone on and I've trained more than 2 million people, 59 different countries, five different continents, written 11 best-selling books. But it's all come from really quite a humble set of beginnings and then organic growth, uh, sort of strategic jumps every six months, 12 months, 24 months of continually looking up, finding great mentors, finding people who are ahead of me on a race that I've decided that I want to run, learning fast, failing fast, and then having another go again. And now at 40 years of age, I've developed a, a fairly decent resume and, and a breadth of experience as well that's come largely through the experience that I've borrowed or garnered from, from the thousands of situations I've been in and the tens of thousands of people I've sat down and asked questions of. That's awesome. And I want to talk more about that before. I just want to acknowledge that this is a long journey and people that are listening to this show uh, should realize that this is something that's been in the making for 20 plus years because we look at people that have sold a million books and done all these things and it's, and and we all want to do it. And then we feel disempowered because how can I do that? But we sometimes we forget all of the mileage that has to go in that. So we acknowledge you for yeah. that, Phil. Uh, I also want to talk about how did you like talk about putting your dream homes and your dream car on your vision board? Like where, where did that idea come from and how old were you? And like, how did that affect your life? I mean, I do remember a conversation once upon a time where I was sharing and mapping out some of the plans that I had for my life. And I was surrounded by some people who were supposed to be near and dear to me at the time. And, and I remember them responding by saying, like, oh, my goodness, Phil, you're such a dreamer. Yeah. Like it's a bad thing. Yeah. And I very realized that I quickly realized that I needed to change up some of the people. And, and, and you know, in my early years, when I say that I had dream boards and things, I I think I had what most kids had, you know, I had a picture of a 1980s 911 on my wall. I had a picture of a Bentley Continental GT on my wall. I had pictures of some beautiful girls on my wall and and, and all the things that any normal team would have. So I wouldn't necessarily say that it was a, a, a vision board or a dream board at that period of time. It was just dreaming. It wasn't with strategic intent. It was just playing a bigger game. And you know, I particularly remember a, a giant poster I had in New York City and, and, and now, you know, a little boy from outskirts of London now now lives in Manhattan with a view of the park. It's kind of a fun, fun place to be able to be. But I didn't know it was a dream board at the time. Does that make sense? It wasn't like, oh, I'm yeah. strategically going out of my way to think that one day I'm going to live there. Here's my vision board. I just had those things in my periphery vision. And, and we're all good at dreaming all of us, I believe, at certain points in our life, I think the miss that many of us make is to say, how do you reverse engineer all of the checkpoints to better get from A to B? Yeah, And that's no, what I've learned you. to be pretty good at is to say, well, okay, if that's where I want to be, what are the hundred milestones to better get from there to there? And, and can I feel okay running that entire race more so than do I just want the outcome? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And I'm I'm big into goals. I've written several books about goal settings. And I think as an athlete, we go down to the hour on what to do, which is extreme for a lot of people. But again, it once you know exactly what to what the next step is, you don't have to worry so much about you know the big goal. And I think that's 
where a lot of people miss and they don't have the patience for that. So just just going back, what advice do you want to give to somebody listening to this? They're a big fan of yours. They want to do something remarkable in life, but they don't really know, you know, where to start. Um, okay. I think the first thing that is worthy of getting clarity on in your own mind is that there is a giant difference between advice and opinion. There are a lot of voices that will talk into your world, particularly when you are younger and what you're looking to be able to do is to shape out your destiny. But this doesn't ever really go away. You just get better at processing it. And both those voices are valuable. Advice is valuable. Opinion is valuable. But understanding the difference between the two can be really quite profound. So an opinion is based on what somebody thinks you should do, not necessarily based on any experience, not based on any sound judgment, not based on anything other than the fact that it is their self-centered opinion. Opinions can be useful if you can process where that person is coming from. Advice by alternative typically is coming from a position of experience and should be listened to on a slightly different frequency than all of the opinions that talk into your world. So to me, that means that you have to start to become very selective as to which voices do you turn up and narrow your focus in on and which voices do you turn down and let to go a little bit blurry. And it doesn't mean that you can shut some of those out because some of them are people you love and that you can decide which frequencies do you want to give volume on and which frequencies do you want to decide that, that, that you're not listening too hard. But these voices coming into your world are, are, are more critical than people give give context to. What you start to realize, though, sometimes is as you're building out your own plan is that you might be missing voices. You might be missing advice. You might be missing guidance. And you've got to collectively go out of your way to be able to go and find those voices. That's why listening to podcasts, I think, are useful, because what it does is it it gives you alternative voices into your world that you can decide to use as proxy mentors or that you can use as as guides in your world. But in that is the specific group of mentors or guides that I would encourage everybody to look for is you two to five years from now. Not you 25 years from now, you two to five years from now. Like arguably speaking, LeBron James is not a very good teacher for your seven-year-old to learn how to be able to play basketball. They're not going to do a good job, right? He's forgot more than what this young lad needs to learn to be able to understand the basics of shooting hoops. So what you're really always looking for is to say, I want to be here, but who's me two to five years from now that I can learn from? Because what they'll do is they'll teach you the steps. Similarly, in your early years as being a martial artist, a gold medal medal winner could be aspirational. They can be you know, a dream or a goal, but they're not going to give you the blueprint to get there. So always be looking for you two to five years on from now and know the difference between advice and opinion and learn how to filter the thoughts that come from those. And what you'll do is you'll start to be able to channel a more purposeful self-talk and decide your own action plan based on the value you bring to the voices that talk to you. That's great advice. Another thing that I wanted to get your opinion on, you know, with we're living in information overflow, right? So it's so easy to get stuck on all these books and podcasts, which are all great and do nothing, which which I think we can all sometimes be a victim of. So what do you want to say to people like they're, they're listening to this, they're in the mode, but they for some reason they 
can't seem to get the the engine started, so to speak. I mean, the world is always going to be full of people who want to read about getting in shape, think about getting in shape, uh, watch videos about getting in shape, and imagine that one day that they can have the body of their dreams. I don't think that's ever going to go away. Yeah. And in many ways, I actually take great comfort in the fact that most people aren't prepared to do what it takes. Because if everybody was prepared to have the discipline to be successful, dang, it would be hard. It would be insanely more competitive to be able to win in this world if everybody was capable of fulfilling potential. So you just have to understand that sometimes some people won't do it. But what there'll be is there'll be junkies thinking about doing it, imagining doing it, giving consideration to be able to do it. Now, I know that's not the people listening to your show right now. So thinking about what is the first step they should take? What is it they should act upon? Here's the cleanest advice I can give on this. Following every piece of personal development that you choose to consume, commit to do two things. And you get to choose what those two things are. But following every piece of personal development that you consume, commit to do two things that are going to move you closer towards your goal. Now, if you make that commitment promise to yourself, those two things could be as simple as, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get up 10 minutes earlier. That simple commitment could be what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a promise to be able to change my diet. That commitment could be, well, I'm going to be brave and make that phone call. That commitment could be that what I am going to do is I'm going to let go of some toxic relationships in my life. I don't care what it is. Every time you consume a purposeful piece of personal development, commit to do two things differently and then do it. That feels manageable. It feels achievable. But the journey you'll go down if you make that promise to yourself, you'll be thankful for over time. But I think too many people are looking for too big of a lift as a result of this epiphany moment that creates them going from here to here. Like you are the third person that has interviewed me today. And I generally tend to, if I'm making myself available for for interviews, is we try to batch because it creates efficiencies. But somebody was asking me today, like, like, what was the tipping point in my career where it went from really hard to then it started to become downhill? And I'm like, there wasn't one. (laughs) Like there wasn't, it just, it yeah. just, it's just been a bumpy, weird, chaotic ride. That if I look yeah. at it over a 15 year period of time, it looks like the trajectory was, was, was this, yeah. but it hasn't, it, you know, it's ups, down, slips, slopes, all sorts of things in between. The only commonality is, is the decision that I've made is that I'm going to look to live life on my terms and I'm going to act to live life on my terms. Yeah. Now I spend more of my days failing than succeeding. Yeah. And I'm okay with that because I'm still in progress. So what would I say to people that that are consuming and not acting is the greatest teacher is experience. So if you're not getting in the arena and getting ready, forget about it. If you want to be a successful podcast host, host a podcast and be excited when two people show up, host a podcast, be excited when seven, when 17, when 32, when three, 320 and every step on the way. And if you can't not be excited by step one, you don't get to play at step 100. Yeah. It's it's so true. And I yet I don't think everybody wants to hear, but it it's it's the reality of progress, right? And it's it's a be- it's a beautiful journey. I'm curious. It is. Also- and another another just quick point on this, I think is worthy in, in conclusion is if that journey is not true. Success doesn't feel good. 
Yeah. If you didn't earn it and work through the challenge it took to be able to reach the outcome, it doesn't matter anyway. And I think what many people miss is that success is only a feeling. Nobody is actually successful. You just feel successful. And you can feel successful on a on an achievement that's this big, and you can feel like a failure on an achievement that was this big. So success is something that has to be designed, and it has to be worth it based on your own criteria of worth it. Yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to do with this show to redefine success, and because I think it's it's truly different for each and one uh, and every one of us. What's your definition of success? When do you feel successful? Um. I think you need the struggle to feel successful. The best definition of success, I'm going to borrow from a guy called Paul J. Meyer. And Paul J. Meyer defines success as the progressive realization of predetermined, worthwhile, and achievable goals. Now, there's a lot in that. Firstly, it's predetermined, which means you picked it. It also talks about the progressive realization which means we have to accept that this feeling of winning does not last a lifetime. It means that you've got to go again and again and again. Progressive realization of predetermined worthwhile, right? That means that you have to decide what's worthwhile. And then that achievable goals, like they have to be things that are within your reach, which means that, yes, we can dream big, but we have to play real, yeah. right? Dream big, but play real. And what happens is when you play real, you keep taking these stepping stones that get you closer to that bigger dream. Yeah. And these are the parts that, 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 that people miss. So I don't have a better definition of success for me, but I do know for sure that success is a feeling. And I love Paul J. Meyer's um, approach to success with that progressive realization of predetermined, worthwhile and attainable goals. And how do you feel managed, like as a high performer, this is something that interests me a lot, as a high performer, how do you manage to find room in your life for the whole picture and not only, you know, what you're laser focused on, like family, travel, and, and health? I know health is very important to you. How do you manage that in your life? Um, it's a struggle. Like, I think anybody who tells you they've got it all figured out is lying. Yeah. <laughs> is life is a competing challenge of priorities that is forever moving through internal and external circumstances. And it's probably a recent discovery for me as in like the last three years or so is to say, I gotta, I gotta learn to enjoy the struggle Yeah, because I focus on health and fitness and my health and fitness gets better. And, but what happens is, is I lose the focus on growth in my businesses. I focus on my businesses and, and travel and, and look to be at out and I'm speaking more and I'm crushing it on stage, but guess what? My relationship with key individuals starts to be able to be challenged as a result of that is if somebody thinks they've got it all figured out, they're either not playing big enough or um, they're straight up lying. And we are challenged as humans in a modern world to, to, to live the veneer of what a successful life looks like based on what we might see on our, on our Instagram feeds, et cetera, as to how everything is awesome. And I, I feel like too many people believe that others of having that sort of Lego movie soundtrack playing in the background, you know, everything is awesome. Yeah. 
beauty is found in shifting focus. Because actually, you only realize what matters when you start to take steps away from it. Like once your health starts to be able to deteriorate, where you don't get to be able to recover as quick as you like, or you find yourself with some form of challenge, ah, okay, health now becomes more important. When you start to realize that actually, if you don't water that relationship, that relationship will no longer serve you. And it means you start to set boundaries. It means you start to be able to make decisions about things you're going to let go of. It means that you start to be able to say, well, actually, I'm okay to go without that. And I think this is the only way that you can, can feel okay to keep moving forward when you want to be a high achiever is you have to decide what you're not and then get peace with it. And, you know, I used to love to cook, used to really love to cook. We now live such a busy life that we next to never cook. And when we do cook, we're not really cooking, right? We're like me assembling and heating and preparing things. But my wife and I, we we like never cook anymore. But if you'd have asked me a decade ago, I'd have told you I love to cook. What have I now had to find acceptance for? Is we eat out. I don't cook. I'm not a cook. I thought I was a cook, but my recent behavior as in the last decade's worth of behavior has proved that I am not a cook because I haven't prioritized the sourcing of the preparing of the putting together of great ingredients. So where has that evolved to is I love great food, (laughs) right? Um, So what do I let go of? I let go of the idea of I'm going to be a great home, home cook that I'm completely at peace at. And I'm completely at peace with the fact that many of the relationships and friendships that existed in my life 20, 25 years ago that don't exist with strength today, i.e. like high school friends, et cetera, I'm completely at peace with the fact that I don't have a group of college friends that I've known since I was like whatever, or a group of high school friends since I've been, I've known since I was five. Like I don't have that in my world and I'm good with it. And I think that's just part of what you have to find is that as you're trying to be complete, you have to shut some doors and shut some boxes for what you could be being judged by to say, I made a decision in my life that those things weren't a priority to me. And what I've got is gifts in other areas instead. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that and being so honest uh, about it, because I think this is something all high performers tend to struggle with. And it is an ongoing process. I think Oprah said it so wisely. You can have everything you want in life, but not at the same time. Right. <laughs> uh, which which is funny. <laughs> Correct. Correct. And you don't want it all at the same time as well. That's something that I've experienced is that sometimes when you have so much of a good thing at the same time, it feels like being in that all-you-can-eat buffet bar yeah. where the only inevitable outcome is that you're just going to end up feeling sick. Yeah because it's too much and and those boundaries and being able to either shut doors or find peace with things that aren't perfect is is the only way you can keep this thing i.e your your mental health somewhere near sane yeah no it's it's interesting and it's interesting when you said that enjoying the struggle or the process i was started thinking about my life as a fighter and as a martial artist and how i use that now in my professional life and how I can actually enjoy, you know, the struggle of doing something. And for me, and I'm curious why I, for me, I enjoy it because I know it's not many people that can endure that. And that puts me in a position to reach 
mm-hmm. the goals I want. And also it makes me feel fucking alive in a sense because I get to do stuff that's hard. Like, how do you process that when it is hard and when you don't have the answers and you don't know what the end result is going to be? I mean, fear and growth are so closely intertwined, right? Is people live so much in fear of failure or fear of it not working out or fear of failing to reach their potential or fear of it going wrong. Yet growth can only exist when fear exists. So if you're passionate about growth, you have to choose to put yourself in fearful situations on repeat. And that means sometimes you have to raise the stakes of exercises that you're doing. And I give you an example of which, right, is I, I speak on stage regularly. Yeah. Being paid to speak more than 3,500 times. Me speaking at an event isn't necessarily something that I am challenged by. It's crudest of senses. Unless I raise the stakes. Unless I decide that what I'm going to try to do is to try to do something I've never done before here. Unless what I decide is that I'm looking to be able to deliver a level of performance that is beyond the standard of what everybody in that audience is anticipating. It's to a standard that is in line with what a Jerry Seinfeld might say is acceptable. Or if it's a level of performance that is at the level of you know, the greatest entertainers on the planet. Now, all of a sudden, because I've raised my own expectation of self in this environment, oh crap, I'm scared again, which means I prepare better, which means I do the work, which means I make brave choices, which means I'm prepared to say that my field of play just expanded because I decided it did, because I know that fear is where growth exists. And if I'm not scared in some way about a decision that we're making, I'm uncomfortable. That's how comfortable I've got in thinking about stepping into fearful situations. And we've done it, you know, we've done it now. Like, like there is no way that, that Robert De Niro should be a neighbor of mine. Not from where I've come from, right? That's not, there's not like, we shouldn't be walking past movie stars on the street. And, and, and from where I've come from, you know, the kids shouldn't go to the school that they go to and all these kind of things in terms of what confirmation bias would say. Yeah. But what do you do is you, you make big, scary decisions sometimes. Yeah. And that for me, a big, scary decision was to commit to living in Manhattan and everything that comes with that. And then to commit to saying that we're going to look to be able to still provide the best schooling for our family in this environment and to commit to the fact that we are going to say, well, we still want to live well while we're here. We don't want to just be in Manhattan and struggle. We want to live well while we're in this environment. So making the decision to not retire, which is what I planned on doing at my late thirties is that, Hey, you know, let's, let's make it and coast into the distance, but instead to say, well, hang on, why don't we level up? Why don't we actually create new external pressures that then result in me needing to grow a bigger business or needing to think about sustainable sustainability with an income and wealth in a different way? Why don't I try and solve a bigger puzzle? Make me feel alive again. And then my realization on that is I think that's a greater teacher to my children than saying I've got everything covered. Let's live a comfortable life. Let's go hide away from too many other things and, and make it easy is nothing good comes from hitting the easy button. Yeah. 
That's interesting. And um, I think that's the, that's what happened when you're a competitor. And I've seen it, like I've met a lot of very, very successful athletes. And the ones that are not able to put it in the new direction usually end up, you know, being miserable because it gets, it. you feel alive in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're towards a project that you don't know what's going to happen. And um, which, can I, which is can I ask a question of you on this? Just based yeah. on the conversation that happened is, is, is when do you know when to quit? Yeah. Because as a, as a sustainable long-term professional athlete, as you've been here is, you know, there's a point that your, your body, your expertise, your maturity, et cetera, is that, is that you're getting better and better and better and better and better and better. And then there has to become a point that there's an element of plateau in terms of physical performance, but maybe mental game and prep and experience is, is serving you. And then there's a, there's somewhere in there where you realize, hang on, it's time to, to do something different. How how do you make that choice? And and what's the thought process that you go through to be able to make that decision where it feels like it's on your terms? I think that's what everybody's struggling with for, for me, martial art, my father, it's my longtime sensei. And for us, when, when he taught karate, it was never about competing, but I got into competing because I went to a camp and they said, you have the potential. And then I went on a 12, 13 year trajectory, giving it my all. Uh, but I always had in my mind, I've, I've always studied people since I was a kid because I wanted to be better. I was, you know, the short chubby kid and I wanted to, you know, learn and excel in life. So I saw that uh, a lot of people in sports, they were doing it for too long. And, and I also realized just like the stock market, it's very hard to time it perfectly. So in my mind, my goal was always to, you know, stop not at the top because I know that's impossible, but darn close to the top. So my last competition was actually, I was 27, which was very premature uh, but I managed to win a world medal in Sydney, Australia, a bronze medal uh, in my style. Now I knew that I could continue five, 10 years and maybe do it again, or maybe do something better. But I know that the price to pay would not be as valuable as another journey I can take in my life. So that that's was my thought process. And that's what I'm trying to do in all of my life. I know I can't time it perfectly. So I want to have a good run on whatever I do, but when I when I feel like I really enjoy it and it's kind of a good moment for me, at that point I'm taking a step back and never look back. Uh, so that's my philosophy. I I think it came from seeing other people not you know going too far and mm-hmm. kind of losing family and starting drinking and, and and things like that, which I didn't want in my life. Yeah. No, that's a fair answer. Thank you for sharing that with me. I know it's your interview on me, but that was yeah. just something I was curious yeah, about. Yeah, thank you. Point. No, uh, pleasure to ask, uh, answer that. And I, it's a struggle. So I want to ask you one more question. Then I want to touch on, you know, your work a little bit more mm-hmm. inten- intense so people can get an introduction to what you do. Uh, first, let's talk about you. In, in the auto description, you talk about you failed miserably a lot of times in your life. Can you just share one or two stories that uh, where you, where you kind of made a big failure and what you learned from that. Oh my goodness. Um, so many, so many. And I, and I, and I think 
one one big one was was really even in the intimacy, uh, the infancy of of this business that I'm that I'm running now was um, at the time of of starting and founding this business is is my personal life was under a lot of struggle. There were some family issues and some relationship breakup, and the result of which was was financial difficulties and a lot of external pressure that was was put on my life. And as much as this business has a good success story of terms of what was happening, these external financial pressures were things that I was I was not paying full responsibility for is, is I was kind of just assuming naively that they would figure themselves out in time and blind optimism that I could take care of these things. Yeah. And this got to a point where it was a you know, really quite a, quite a low point in my life where I literally did not have the cash flow to be able to keep things moving forward. Like credit cards were bouncing, no money in bank accounts, like letters arriving at the door and got to within moments of, um, of declaring bankruptcy and the series or catalog of failures that would be made to get to that point all amalgamated with me driving back from a from a from a training gig at the other end of England really late at night really burning the candle at both ends and and I remember just 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 breaking down almost into tears and pulling into uh, a motorway service station in the in the UK knowing that I really shouldn't be driving at, at that point in terms of how I was feeling and and kind of got really quite destitute about it and at that point I just sat with a pen and I journaled and I wrote and then what out came was a was a poem and I'm no poet but it was a poem that I wrote that that you know if anyone's interesting I've, I've documented it since but it's um is it really moved me from this it's not fair I'm frustrated complaint expression of why is this happening to me towards an outcome even through the writing of this that was like well actually no this is my fault I am taking responsibility I am aware I am in control and and actually everything that happens onwards from that point is down to me and I think I finished the piece of work by by writing the words that success is all my fault and what I mean by that is quite often we say, oh, it was her fault. It was their fault. It was, you know, it's very easy to be able to pass blame into others. And it is me taking responsibility of everything in my life by saying it's all my fault. Yeah. is isn't necessarily because I was saying it's a fault. It was more me utilizing that sequence of words to be able to say, no, 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 I got this. Because actually, wherever this destiny takes me, it's me steering the ship, it's me putting the fuel in the tank, and it's me looking to be able to set the direction at every given point in time. So the I've had a lot of failures that have hit hard, but I think that one still stands out the most profound as this catalogue of micro failures that resulted on me ignoring clues or not taking full responsibility of what's happening and then proclaiming some version of it's not fair that, that had me hit that somewhere near rock bottom and then and then grab control of everything and say no I got this and and I guess now it means that every way I live like if if I'm 10 pounds heavier than where I'd like to be well uh, that's on me if my relationship is not as strong as I would like it to be with people I care about that's on me if we haven't got enough revenue in a key part of the business that's on me if my team isn't performing the way i'd like them to be that's on me if um you know the house isn't tidy guess what that's on me too right it is is that's probably the biggest lesson is i'm accountable for everything in my life and whether true or untrue i find the belief helps me
Yeah, no, it's, it, I agree with you. It's helped me a lot. A couple of years ago, I decided to, you know, take total accountability on everything in my life. And it's, it's a beautiful thing when you do that, because now you can actually start changing and be okay with, you know, whatever happens in, in a sense. I'm curious, um, Phil, how long did it take from that moment you're sitting in the car writing that poem? poem? Like, how long is the journey to change? Uh, because I think that's what's interesting to a lot of people. They are in a struggle. And, and I think we, we want to also want to show, like, it's not an overnight, you, you get the revelation and then like, whoa. I, I think the, the, the starting point of that is the second that you take full responsibility, it allowed me to be able to do a really important next step, which is, is what I call sometimes staring the monster in the face. Yeah. And, and by which I mean is that I could get a handle on everything that was going on. I could get it down on paper and I could get crystal clear on, on how big this problem was, yeah. what the factors are that are affecting the problem and therefore build a roadmap towards being able to change it. And, and in that situation, it meant, being responsible and reaching out to some of the people that wrote money and are creating a, a meaningful game plan to be able to get those monies paid back. It meant having some tough conversations with other people who are part of my infrastructure and telling them the truth of the situation that was nothing to do with them, nothing to do with their work, but everything to do with decisions that I'd made prior. It meant the ability of being able to say, well, hold on, I cannot fix this overnight. This is going to take a little bit of time, but I can fix it. And not only can I fix it, I can play straight on through it and keep moving forward so how long did it take i guess there is no fixed answer to that but not quick but the decision to say i'm responsible i'm going to stare the monster in the face and i'm going to figure out what it takes that was quick yeah you know that was a weekend that was a weekend to say well actually let's not hide from these letters or ignore these calls or or um blindly optimistically keep running forward and think that it's all going to figure out just because I'm good over here that I can fix all this stuff over here it meant and it meant owning some truths to some people around in my life to be able to say this is exactly where I'm at right now and what also then starts to happen is is other people pour into your life to help in ways that they can bring skill sets towards it once you're once you're first truthful with yourself and then truthful with the the squad that you would like to be able to come with you on that next chapter of your journey I love that. And I think that's, that's something, there's a stigma of asking for help sometimes uh, with more, I'm more so I think with men without generalizing. And I think when you do ask for help, it's incredible how, how many people actually want to help you and are also going through their own kind of journey. Yeah. But there's a point in that as well is you got to be clear on the help you need. And I think too many people ask for help loosely yeah. and expect the person they're asking to both diagnose the problem, come up with a road plan towards being able to achieve it, make sure that you're committed to be able to buy in, to be able to go the distance, and then pour the time, effort, energy, money into it as well. Like the, the ask is too big. Yeah. And most of us could actually achieve more from the relationships that exist in our life if we were just more precise yeah. with the ask that we were looking for. And even, you know, listeners right now is, you could say to people, hey, well, if you like the show, please share it with your friends. Or you can say, hey, if you like the show, 
then then click the button that it looks like this in order to be able to do exactly that. Like you can be precise with the instruction and then the listener knows exactly what you're asking for them to do and they can help more. Where if you're like, if you help it, just share. Just And we see it in the books world all the time as well, where people are like, well, if you like the book, share the book. And, and the downside is, is people actually do. Yeah. They just put a lazy share out into the world with no purpose, but a more precise or strategic ask could have resulted in a more purposeful, amplified outcome. I love that. And that, that leads us into, you know, exactly what to say. Uh, mm-hmm. So let's talk about your, some of your best work and how, how would we introduce the audience to you? What are some of the tools that they can use right after this show to start having better conversations in their life? Well, in the little book, exactly what to say is, is 23 sequences of words that talk straight to the subconscious brain. And it's more than that, really. It's not just 23 sequences of words. It's 23 principles of influence and persuasion described or or, or disguised as sequences of words. See, I could have took a long time trying to explain all of the principles of influence and persuasion. It would be a big book that nobody would read and people would struggle to find examples. Or I can write a very precise book that gives 23 examples that encourages people to go utilize these words in their own world so they understand the principles through experiences. So the book is very much form following its function, and I would encourage people to go read it. But in the time that we have it together today, rather than just say, these are the words and here are some examples, and we can do that if needs be in a second, is I'd first invite people to think about the the operating system that sits behind this work. We've gone quite deep in thinking, and rather than people think this is just a tactical playbook for witty one-liners, is when given the thinking behind it, then it might serve them more. And if somebody's got to this point of our show today, I'm pretty sure they're a big thinker. Yeah. So what would be the thinking that sits behind this work that can help them and use it straight away? Four big things to think about. One is that the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment you're saying it. Now that can sound like a simple one-liner, but it's bigger than that. Every human being on the planet has critical conversations in their life, conversations that index at a higher value than every other conversation. So my invitation to the listener right now is to think about three critical conversations in your world. Take one that has commercial appeal, one that has leadership appeal, and one that matters in your personal life. So your commercial application may well be, well, um, i got to get better that when somebody asks me how much do you charge? Yeah, i got to get a better response to that question. Your leadership um, critical conversation could be something as like, well, I meet with my team every Monday morning for 15 minutes at this time. Well, well, could you just dial up your effectiveness in that one conversation alone? And let's say you've got a personal scenario is, is, is for me, the one that I'm working on right now is the first sequence of words that leave my mouth when I re-enter the home from being away on a business trip. That is a critical conversation in my mind. If I can do better at that, we have better evenings, better weekends, better life. Like it, it really impacts. But if you can't think of a better personal scenario, even give consideration to the how do you answer the how are you question. Because I promise you, your answer to the how are you question can have a significant impact to the success or quality of your relationships. So give yourself the gift of narrowing your gaze to say, not I want to get better at conversation. What conversations do you want to get better at? And pick no more than three. One commercial, one leadership, one personal. Now we've got a lens to be able to apply this work through. Jump to the second cornerstone or, or, or key principle that exists in all of the work that we teach around exactly what to say. And it's to remember that the fuel to great conversation is curiosity. 
if you ever find yourself in a situation where a conversation didn't work out the way you wanted it to, I am almost always certain that the reason for that fact is because you were not curious for long enough. You were not curious at a strategic time. You reached a position of certainty or assumption before you had the right to be able to do so. And your assumption or quick judgment is what resulted in the creation of friction in that conversation, which resulted in it not going the way you wanted it to be. So you want to become a better communicator, become more curious. If you want to ask more strategic questions, ask more curious questions, because those curious questions will earn you more of the context of the other person's world, which means any advice you have or any action you're looking for will sit better because it's coming from a better perspective or angle. So we've got the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment you're saying it. We've got curiosity as the fuel for great conversation. We've got a third thing to think about is the reminder that people do things for their reasons and not yours. So if you're looking to be more influential in any given moment, you have to be able to translate any ask into a benefit towards the other person. You have to be able to understand what might make this beneficial towards another person. And a failure to be able to do so means you're pushy, you're self-serving, you're obnoxious, you're all the things that people don't want you to be. And then the fourth thing that sits in our thinking or operating system behind every example of exactly what to say is that it's the person that's asking the questions that controls the conversation. These are very simple to understand at surface level. They're very difficult to practice in a day-to-day environment. It starts with, if you can just pick three critical conversations that matter in your world, and you can commit to that, you will get better at those conversations already without knowing any new skills, just because the intentionality has appeared that these conversations matter more than others. Choose them. Start to flex curiosity more effectively. Put yourself in a position that you are thinking about how this could impact other people before you start to think about how it can impact you. And then finally, look to respond to more questions with questions than questions with answers. And this book will become even more useful because what you have is you have really powerful prefaces that give you permission to ask questions in a more meaningful way. Thank you for sharing that. And I've been, I've been diving into this book and I think this is one of those books that it's an ongoing process. I'm sorry for all the dog ears, but Good, I love it. it. <laughs> Get after it. Um, I think I was always at, before I wrote my own book, I always thought you should not put dog ears because I felt bad for the author, but now it's the complete opposite. Yeah, I want someone it. to study my Deface work. Deface it, challenge <laughs> it, come up with your own examples. And, 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 and you know that, that point I've just made there about saying, choose your three critical conversations. Yeah. If you took that book that you've read again recently and read it again recently, just through that scenario of your three critical conversations, you'll be able to write yourself new examples of these words that aren't in the book towards a conversation that you've decided matters to you. And that would be my encouragement to anyone listening right now is don't think of this book as a book you read. Think of this book as a prompt to help you come up with refined or revised examples for precise sequences of words that can help you to deliver more of the outcomes that matter in your world. And is this the first book, somebody that haven't read any of your books, is this the first one to start with? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and, and I've written 11 books yeah. and exactly what to say outperforms the others significantly and it is universally acceptable to everybody. And I, and I think it's the great starting place. And 
It's a 72-minute read. You can get cover to cover like in next to no time. It has big font. It's easy to apply. You can put it into practice straight away. And success leaves clues, right? We started there in today's discussion. Is I'm not telling you it's the best place to start. The 1.7 million people that have purchased this book up until right now are telling you this is probably the best of my work to read. Yeah. (laughs) That, That must be a pretty good feeling. Um, it's a great feeling. It's also a huge responsibility, right? Yeah. <laughs> now I have certified guides teaching my work around the world. I have a duty to keep evolving it and keep challenging it and keep moving it forward. And, and in the same way that if you're a, if you're a successful long-term musician, yeah. you have a duty to keep playing your greatest hits. Yeah. Like John Bon Jovi cannot decide that he's sick and tired of living on a prayer. Yeah. Like he's got to love that song for the rest of the time because that song's loved him for all time. Yeah. And I think that's the duty that comes that when you produce a body of work that has mass market appeal and mass market impact yeah. is you become a custodian of that message yeah. and that you serve the duty of what it means to other people long after you serve of what it ever meant for you. Yeah, that's true. Um, Phil, I have two more questions. Uh, the first one is, what should I have asked you, but I forgot? <laughs> um, well, you should have asked me, what is my least favorite question to be asked by a podcast host? Because <laughs> I'd have told you it was that one. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, that'll be my short answer to that. And I'll yeah. tell you why I think that that is a less than ideal question to ask is because yeah. what it says which I know is not true because I know what we spoke about at the start today is what, what it indicates is it indicates you didn't prepare. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like a lazy question. Yeah. So my answer to that is to not ask questions that could potentially feel like lazy questions. Yeah. And I like that. It is, is I would argue that you are better than that question. And the prep that you told me you went through to get to today tells me you're better than that question. So I like that. My, yeah, my, I like my, that. You should have asked me what, what what's my least favorite. <laughs> you know, we, we live and we learn, Phil. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that feedback. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm a big student of life. I always want to learn and get better. Uh, my final question is uh, for people listening here today, they're still with us. We thank you for your time. Uh, what is the first step they can do to get a little bit closer to their dreams and goals right after this show? Um, write them down, write them down in detail, write them in 4k. What do I mean by that? Bring color and context to it, add details, add descriptions, write the long-term goals and dreams, and then ask yourself the question, what would need to be true for that to be true? And let's just say that your dream is to be an Olympic champion within martial arts. Well, what would need to be true for that to be true? Well, if you've never been in a dojo before, you should probably book your first lesson. And start to be able to plan out, well, what would need to exist in this next 12 weeks worth of steps to get me a lot closer to that? So write the dream, then ask yourself the question, what would need to be true for that to be true? And then give yourself a 12-week action plan that starts to be able to build that evidence of truth towards your long-term goal being true. And, and I give ex- just a tiny example in that in our world is, is, is my wife and I have questioned on repeat 
how we want to live like geographically we're not tied to any areas like many of us are with with rich family connections etc so we think that we would like to live somewhere we say well what would need to be true if that were to be true well i guess we'd need to like it we've never been we only think we would like it so we should probably book a trip we should probably go try it on for a weekend we maybe book an airbnb maybe stay there for a month next year right <clears throat> those first steps are often what are missing to allow you to try on the life that you think you want or to take a big step closer towards it that's the step that most people fail to make and that's what i invite people to do a better job of doing if they want to live a life of their dreams Great. Thank you so much, Phil, for your time. It's been a pleasure learning from you, having, on, having you on the show. I look forward to sharing this with the world. People, if people want to work with you and uh, connect with you, what forum is best? Um, stop by the website, philmjones.com, if you want to just poke around. If you'd like to connect and chat more with me, I'll make this easy here as well. Instagram nice. is probably the best place to find me, at philmjonesuk. Ping me, a, ping me a DM, say hi, let me know what you took from today's discussion. If you mention Peter's name, I know where you came from too. And let's see if we can change this world together. But always love to hear from people that are change makers, that are putting effort into practice and going on to be able to write their own version of success, but more importantly, live it too. Thank you. And thank you guys uh, for listening and watching the I Love Success podcast. We are approaching 300 episodes and I feel so lucky to be able to learn from all these amazing, incredible humans beings and share that with the world. As I told you before, my mission is to help at least 10 million people in 10 years to achieve their dreams. So if you did like this show, share it with a friend. And also I'm going to learn a lesson here from Phil today. Write exactly in the post what you liked about it and why your friends should listen to it. Give us a review, share a little bit more in detail what you'd really enjoyed. That would make my day. And that's it, guys. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you guys next week.